We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one can see or will see the Lord. In God's good providence, we come to a challenging text for our community at this moment. We're continuing our study of Hebrews chapter 12 and we're turning to verses 12 through 17 now for some additional exhortations that the author gives which support his primary exhortation, which governs this chapter and governs the entire book, which is to run with endurance the race that's set out before us. We won't get to all of the verses in this text. We're going to spend a couple of weeks here. Today, we're simply going to focus in on verse 14. To run well, to run with endurance, according to verse 14, we are to strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Uh, It is painfully obvious to many of us at Park Street Church that a lack of peace makes running our race with endurance much more difficult. A lack of peace increases the temptation that we already feel to give up, to step off the course, to tap out of being obedient and living by the fruit of the Spirit. It can make us cynical and hardened self-righteous and accusatory. The enemy of our souls knows this full well. The picture that I want to give you is that of a beehive. Imagine a well-functioning colony of bees living peacefully and productively, going on about their life together, who are interrupted by a devious teenager who runs up to and grabs and then shakes the hive, shattering the peace and sending the colony into a frenzy. Bees buzzing around everywhere, angry, disoriented, and eager to sting. Maybe that picture hits a bit too close to home. Most of you are aware that we are navigating some difficulties right now as a church body. There have been tensions among staff, tensions among elders, tensions between committees in this church, and tensions among congregants. The annual meeting coming up in a few weeks will feature a contested election which has much at stake for the future of our church. The hive, indeed, has been shaken. To those of you who are new or relatively unaware or are just visiting or tuning in from hundreds of miles away, I want you to know that even as we as a church are experiencing conflict, I want you to know that Jesus is still here that God has not forsaken this body, and that his healing power is unleashed even in times like this, and that we as a community, as we yield to Jesus, can learn much from God through trial and conflict, much that can transform us and make us more fit instruments of his love and healing and grace in the lives of others. There is, and I think I can say this, and certainly I can say it of my own heart, there is a transformation going on, and and though it is not easy, though it's not comfortable, though in a very real sense we would rather not be going through this, this is the race set before us. 
This is the opportunity that the Lord has given to us as a church body. I've refrained up to this point from addressing these challenges from the pulpit, and I don't plan to do so regularly, but there was absolutely no way I thought I could faithfully handle this text, particularly verse 14, without addressing them. Back to verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's think about the word strive for a moment. To strive, the verb is in the imperative form. It's a command, and it means in a literal sense to move rapidly and decisively toward an object. It is to run after something. In the past few months, for obvious reasons, I have not been riding my bike as much, but I have been taking up riding the T with a lot more regularity, and it has enabled me to see a picture of this kind of striving quite routinely. Just this past week, I was uh, coming off the tee at Downtown Crossing and starting to walk through the tunnel that goes up to the Park Street Station. And there was a man dressed in his business clothes and a woman dressed quite nicely in heels. And they started to gather up their things and started running. They definitely weren't prepared to run that day. They looked quite awkward. But when the train that was just arriving and about to leave was about to shut its doors, they wanted to strive toward that goal that had been put in front of them to get on the train. Paul uses the same verb for strive in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. I press on, that's the word strive, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To press on, to strain toward, to run after, to pursue, to aspire to something. That is what the exhortation is here to us this morning. A quick word on striving and grace. Some of you might rightly wonder, well, how can this exhortation be here, especially when it's attached to the final outcome of seeing the Lord? How can this be given to those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone? Isn't the power of the Christian good news the fact that we have been given a gift that no one deserved or earned or merited, a gift that is incongruous with our own sense of worthiness or our own worthiness or, or, or deserving? And the answer to that is that question is, Absolutely, yes. This is at the heart of our gospel. God has given us a gift that we do not deserve. God justifies the ungodly, we might say, through the book of Romans. And yet the effect of this gift, freely given, is transformation. It is to transform us. Yes, we still disobey. Yes, we still sin. Remember, if anyone says that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us from 1 John 1. But we do not remain complacent or stagnant in our disobedience and our sin. Rather, we are striving toward the goal, pressing on, on this upward call. And that takes effort and energy and focus, just like the people moving toward the Orange Line train that's about to close its doors. And this effort and striving is not inconsistent with grace but it is the outworking of the gift of grace in our own lives, motivated by love and enabled, and this is so important, enabled by the power of God present in each one of his children through the Holy Spirit. It is the outworking of God's power and grace that enables us to strive for peace with everyone and for for holiness. This is the way in which God's grace begins to work in us after we are born again. And that spirit-empowered striving is not so that we can somehow then re-earn the gift that was given that we didn't deserve. No, it's actually to enable us, by by the grace of God, to grow in the life that we have been given by his sheer 
gift. A life that is beginning to be conformed to the image of his son who is holy. So in this sense, and paradoxically, I might want you to think about this idea of striving as a kind of restful striving. You know who you are as children of God, recipients of his love, yet hear this exhortation to strive, rooted in that assurance, but calling us then toward exerting effort through the power of the Spirit to grow in a direction. And this idea that grace and effort are somehow at odds is not true, but they are good friends unified under the grace and mercy of God. So strive freely and gladly, knowing that this is what God intends and enables in your life and in mine and in our life together as a body. Strive. Two things that we're supposed to strive for. The first, peace with everyone. The everyone here, I would suggest, must start with the Christian community of which we are a part the local church. It must start with us and then spill over from us to, you know, to be embodied in li- in, with other Christians in our city and neighborhoods and then to neighbors and friends and coworkers and the world all around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. We don't just strive for peace within, we strive for peace in the world. But it has to start here at home, at our church home. It's important to note that to strive for peace is not the command to be at peace with everyone. If we were commanded to be at peace, that would place peace above truth and love in a way that the scriptures do not do. To strive means to do everything that you can do, as far as it depends on you, without compromising the call to truth and to love, to live peaceably with all. Here, I'd like to cross-reference to Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We cannot discard the truth. We cannot simply brush the issues under the rug to seek to arrive at peace, as tempting as that may be. That would be a distortion of this command in verse 14. And we must be careful in our desire for conflict to go away that we do not short-circuit the necessary steps for genuine biblical reconciliation and peace, which it can be very tempting to do. In other words, the peace for which we are to strive is a peace rooted in truth and humility and not in appearances and convenience, because that kind of peace is not the biblical peace for which we are to strive. And let me speak to those of you who are particularly conflict avoidant. You know who you are. You would be able to describe yourselves. Because you especially need to hear this nuance and be emboldened. The exhortation to strive for peace is not an invitation to avoid saying or doing hard things. In love, it is often these very hard things that are the duties and demands of love and truth. We are yet to strive for peace with everyone so far as it depends upon us, to live in peace with all. To strive for peace must mean that we are not to provoke, but to comfort. Not to jab, but to embrace. Not to ignore, but to listen. Not to accuse, but to repent. And not to defend, but to unveil. 
I can't unveil for any of you, but I can do a bit of unveiling of myself before you. And please forgive me for a moment for being so self-referential, but I believe that in this case, this is quite relevant. As many of you know, I recently completed a deep dive one-week leadership course, and it was really a powerful week for me. The Lord was gracious to me through that course, and I came to see some things in a clearer light, things which I had already been aware of and even to some degree have been working on and have been talking with some of you about, but things that I saw in a new and clearer light in my own heart. And I came to a clearer realization in which some of my deficiencies and weaknesses as a leader have contributed to some of the present difficulties in our community. And even how those difficulties have led to pain and mistrust for some of you. That is to say that I can see more clearly now how some of my ways of leading and making decisions among you and with you have worked against this exhortation to strive to be at peace with everyone or to strive for peace. Uh, let me explain a little bit more. I do have a deep heart for people wouldn't be in this role if that weren't the case. And I have a, a heart of a shepherd, and I consider it one of the greatest privileges of my life. It's really all I want to do when I grow up one day is be a shepherd, um, to sit with people and to understand and bear your pain with you and to pray with you. But I do think that the way in which I've inhabited the leadership dimensions of this role that God has called me into and some of the decisions that I've made or encouraged the elders to make that I've given more weight to the principle or logic or rationale side of things and not enough weight to the emotional implication inside of decisions and its impact upon people. One of the strengths that I do think the Lord has given me is to be principled and to be courageous in what I believe to be the truth. But our strengths, as most of you know, usually have a darker side to them. And I think that at times my commitment to principle or logic or to what I genuinely believe is right and good for the church as a collective has meant that I haven't properly weighed the emotional impact of some of those decisions upon some of you. Of course, principles and people are not in conflict, and prioritizing people first is a principle that I would deeply affirm. But I do think in the leadership mode of my time among you at Park Street, the principled logic side has been too strong at times, and it's been a deficiency in my tenure here. And this has caused a level of hurt and mistrust and has, in a very real sense, disturbed the peace which I am commanded to strive for alongside of you. And I want to own my own role in this. And I believe, again, that I've seen the texture of the onus of responsibility for some of our present lack of peace that I bear in a new and deeper way as a result of my week away. And I am really genuinely grieved by this, and I am sorry for this, and I want to confess it before you and before the Lord, and to say to you particularly, if you're one for whom this has caused pain or mistrust, that I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you directly. I'm still exploring this with Jesus, but I suspect there may be even a level of pride a sinful pride, a stubbornness at the bottom of this, a pride that I know that this 
is right or that is right, whatever the cost may be. A pride that is led not to, not to really listen to and to onboard the input of others in the way that I should. And that pride buried deep within is something that the Lord is still working on and rooting out of me. It can be disguised as well-intentioned obedience, courageous obedience to what is right and healthy, which is a genuine part of my heart and my motivations. But I think the Lord is helping me to see that sometimes it's just prideful clinging to my perspective or opinion. And there is a difference, a difference that has an impact upon our peace. To say again what I said to you during our October 8th meeting, uh, I am a sinner saved by grace, a work in progress with a lot of room to grow. And the reality and impact of sin upon my heart and my soul and my mind and my leadership is real. And when called to a position like this to serve here in this way, this sin, my sin, which I'm still discovering and seeking to be rid of, is going to, to and does have an impact upon others. And that's a sobering realization for me in a new way, but an honest one. And I acknowledge it before you today in light of the exhortation of Hebrews 12, 14. I also commit to striving afresh for the peace with everyone through the manner in which I shepherd, make decisions, and serve as a leader and a pastor among you. That said, and I'm not about to just take away what I just said, like give with the right and take away with the left, but I, I do want to acknowledge that hard decisions are still a burden of leadership, and every single one of you knows that about your lives, whether as parents or in your workplaces. And some decisions that leaders have to make will inevitably cause pain to some and hurt, even if they are extra, exercised in the most loving and collaborative way possible. That is to say that giving proper weight to the emotional impact of decisions doesn't mean, that, uh, doesn't mean never making a decision if we know that it will cause some hurt or some pain. But how we go about that, how I go about that, is an area of continued growth and is really important for the call here to strive for peace with everyone. Striving for peace with everyone has different implications upon leaders and followers in any given context to address the family context for a moment, and to address specifically teenagers and tweens and children here in the room with us right now. This means not disrupting the family over a decision that your mom or dad makes with which you don't agree or that you don't like. It means extending grace and humbling yourself and honoring the role that God has given your mom or dad in your life. To parents, it means not exasperating your children it means being gracious with them and being sensitive to their needs and perspectives and hearts, even as you seek to lead them in a way that is best for them. And both roles in the family context, just like every role in the church context, we all have unique responsibilities to uphold depending upon our God-given role. And we will all bring sin to bear in the discharging of those responsibilities with one another. And I would say that for those who are in leadership, there is an extra burden here because I do believe that the sins of leaders can have larger, larger ripple effect impacts in the life of a community. We are to strive for holiness, to strive for peace with everyone. I would just encourage us to ask the Lord to show us our sin in a fresh way. 
and to lead us more deeply in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that connects then to the second thing for which we are to strive in our verse, which I just mentioned. Not just to strive for peace with everyone, but we are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I can't help but believe that these two are connected. There's only one verb, to strive, applied in two ways. And I do believe these are deeply connected because what is it that disrupts peace more than sin? To be holy is to be like God, the God who is love. And it is to walk in love, a holy love. And that will promote peace. To be unholy is to bite and devour one another. It is to tear down, to accuse, to harden in anger or hurt. And sin that flows out of that will always disrupt peace. Not just the high-handed, intentional, malicious sin, but the sin which is insidious, that may even disguise itself in our souls as an angel of light, as I've confessed to you that I'm working through with the Lord in a new way in my own heart. For those of you who have been fairly involved in the conflict that we are experiencing, I want to ask you to consider your words over the past few months, or maybe just over the past few days. Have these been tainted by sin? Have you gossiped about your brother or sister? Have you spoken in anger or exasperation and with an intent to tear down rather than to edify or build up? Have you imputed motives to the actions of others which you have no ability to know? Have you failed to extend grace to someone? I'm not suggesting for a moment that we don't need straight talk. I actually think we need more straight talk. We need more the muscle of how to speak the truth in love in order to grow up, to use Ephesians 4, where that comes from, into maturity as one body under Christ our head. We need straight talk. I'm not suggesting that we are not called by God to, in fact, say hard things to one another. We must. I'm not suggesting that we're not to confront our brother or our sister when he or she is perpetuating falsehood. That is a big part of our calling as disciples of Jesus. And I do believe that it's necessary in this present trial that we are experiencing. Though the manner in which we do this must be marked by gentleness, humility, and meekness. There are a lot of, and I'm going to use a really technical word right now, there are a lot of shenanigans <laughs> around here in every direction. It actually is a technical use of this word. It means secret or dishonest maneuvering or activity. And this needs to be called out for the health of the body and for the pursuit of both holiness and peace. But this is important. Have we first considered and weighed the log in our own eye before we quickly step into that role? Have we first done a good bit of soul searching before the Lord? Have we cried out to God, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? Really, have we said that with a wide, open, expansive sense of expectation? Search me, O oh God. 
Reveal to me the depths of my own soul, which are often hidden from me. Reveal to me where, despite holding others to a near standard of perfection, I'm giving myself an easy pass through this destructive habit or broken relationship. May our striving for holiness start with each one of us and graciously and gently and boldly carry on with our brothers and sisters. Where we can go wrong so quickly and so easily, especially in times of conflict and tension, is that we let the conflict, the disagreement, the perceived injustice, the confusion, the disorientation, the frustration, the hurt, the pain, the anger. We let all of these things give us a green light to, to engage in words and actions that we would not otherwise engage in. Anger is perhaps the best illustration of this. And to go back to the family, when a parent gets angry at a child, it's natural to, last, to lash out, to disparage, to criticize. And that doesn't reflect the heart of the mom or the dad who does this. It's just anger getting the better of them. And I think most parents here know what I'm talking about in your homes. Godly parents will be quick to apologize when this happens. But it's the anger that sort of opens the door to something that we would not otherwise do. And in communal conflict, it is easy for the things that I mentioned which hang over us and deeply impact many of our hearts right now to become the justification for our departure from the holiness of God. And when that occurs, when we open that door to greater sin, to our sin entering the community in a more pronounced way, and we can even applaud the sins of others when their sins and sinful actions are supporting our views, peace gets fractured more and more. We can nestle many evil jabs at others in sweet-sounding platitudes or even spiritual language. We can claim the spiritual high ground, which is dangerous business and manipulative to the body. We can, in short, at times, use God's name or his word to attempt to cover up sinful and harmful words and actions. And let's be clear that God is not fooled and that God will not be mocked. May the Lord give each of us grace to see and reject that temptation that is very real and to encourage others among us along this path of righteousness together. And to be very clear, I include myself in this warning as much as any of you. To say that this holiness is required to see the Lord is a reminder that the miraculous life of God in us, if it is truly of God, is to begin to enable our lives to correlate to the character of the life-giving God himself in all circumstances. When the heart has been transformed, then out of that heart will begin to flow the holiness of God. Not by any means perfectly, not necessarily immediately, but over time and as a result of God's ongoing grace working deeper and deeper into the fabric of our souls. And that grace working in us is manifest even in the ongoing striving that we are exhorted to here toward peace and toward holiness. And maybe this is just a bit of preacher's license, but let me suggest to you that perhaps this reality of not seeing the Lord is not just about what will happen at the end on the day that Jesus returns. Because when we sin and when we break and hurt the community of God's people, 
we often just evoke more responses that lead to more sin, and it becomes a deadly cycle or a spiral downward. And nonetheless, each of us remains individually responsible for our own actions, even as sin begets sin. But my contention here is that when this happens in a community, instead of seeing the Lord, what do we see? We just see the flesh. We see the enemy. And sometimes we're the ones to put him on display. So this idea of seeing the Lord, it hinges even in the present day upon our striving after this peace and this holiness together. The dangers and disastrous effects of sin lead the author of Hebrews to continue in verses 15 through 17. I'm only going to just briefly say something. We'll come back to this later. But to describe a watchfulness against sin in the Christian community that is to be a hallmark of the Christian community. If we are to run with endurance, these things must not be indulged. They're part of what we must remove by the grace of God, the sin that clings so closely, that's hindering our running with endurance. And each of them in this little section is rooted in an experience of the old covenant community of God's people. Notice verse 15 for just a moment. It doesn't say that you fail to obtain the grace of God, but it says, see to it, watch out, be careful, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That means you and everyone else around you. We are to be on watch for ourselves, yes, but we are also to be on watch for one another because your sin and my sin can cause great harm to us, yes, personally, but also to us, the community, to one another. So we are to be on watch. We need to rebuke, to, to be rebuked and to rebuke to confess and to acknowledge, to receive the, with grace the confessions of others as well, and to extend grace to one another as we seek to fight sin together. And this is what makes a community in Christ different from any other community. Forgiveness, grace, humility, meekness. And even now, even in this moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us a great opportunity as a church to be brought low, to own our own brokenness and sin, to exercise grace, and to pursue reconciliation and healing with one another. This is to grow in holiness and peace as a body. And this is my prayer for us as we navigate this challenging moment together. Again, if you're new here, welcome. <laughs> but my, invi my invitation to you is to join us as we, a broken body of people, all of us works in progress, seek to press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And not one of us knows how to do that right now. But we know who does. And he's the one that we invite you to join us to follow, to serve, to get to know, to honor, to love, and to reflect in our words and actions, even now. So let's strive as an act of the grace of God at work in us, let's strive together for peace with everyone, especially with one another, and for holiness.
Before I pray, I want to take just a little time in silence to allow you to be attentive to the Spirit's working in your own heart right now. Father, have mercy upon us, we pray. May none of us be like the Pharisee who says, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. I pray that we would have the heart of the tax collector who cries out to you, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, we plead with you from our place of need that you would restore peace and that you would begin in each of our own hearts that work. Lord, we pray that you would teach us all that you have to teach us right now. And we pray as we walk through this season together that you would be glorified and honored as we strive for peace with one another and as we strive for holiness. Lord, have mercy. We pray in Jesus' name.